Welcome to It's the Pictures That Got Small, a movie club for the stuck at home. I'm Nate DeMeo. And I'm Karina Longworth. This week we watched a movie that got bigger for smaller screens. The director's cut of the Academy Award hoarding, Amadeus. And as always, we're going to raise some money for independent movie theaters. But if you do listen to this show regularly, and first of all, thank you. But anyway, if you do, then you know that we usually start off our show with our spin the wheel segment we catch up on what we've been watching with our guest. Sadly, a technical snafu will keep this from you this week. You can thank the production challenges of the global pandemic for that. But we are able to give you just about all the rest of the show in its entirety, including a special guest appearance by writer slash director slash co-host husband, Ryan Johnson. He is going to pop into Karina's recording booth to break down his dismay over the fact that you can only see the director's cut of Amadeus. But first, let's break down the film with producer extraordinaire Stacey Sher who has not only produced Mrs. America, which is now streaming on FX for Hulu, but so many movies you love, like Pulp Fiction and Reality Bites and The Fisher King, and and a movie that has the plot point that has made me laugh as hard as I ever have in my life, which is when Method Man and Red Man try to gain academic superpowers by digging up the body of John Quincy Adams and smoking his ashes in How High. She also worked with Amadeus director Milos Forman on the Andy Kaufman biopic Man and the Moon. So anyway, here is Karina to kick us off. The version of Amadeus that was released in 1984 was two hours and 40 minutes long and rated PG. The version we watched is the director's cut, which runs three hours and was rated R, probably entirely because of a shot of actress Elizabeth Barrage's breasts. This version is the movie as scripted, but according to director Milos Forman, they cut 20 minutes before the initial release because they were worried about the MTV generation being able to sustain their attention spans through a three-hour movie about classical music. But this is a movie about classical music with a central character who has the energy of an early 80s rock star. And in fact, the distributor Orion made a music video to promote the movie, which combined footage from Amadeus with footage of David Lee Roth, Elton John, (laughs) and other contemporary stars set to Mozart's Symphony 25 in G minor. The efforts to align Mozart to 80s rock and pop were successful in that the movie in turn led to the Falco song, Rock Me Amadeus. So Foreman reinstated the cut footage in 2002 for a DVD release, and now only the director's cut is commercially available. The film was based on a hit Tony Award-winning play, which had starred on Broadway, Ian McKellen as Salieri, Tim Curry as Mozart, and Jane Seymour as his wife. Curry was replaced on stage by Mark Hamill, who Foreman refused to audition for the movie because he couldn't see him as anything but Luke Skywalker. Amadeus was nominated for 11 Oscars, and it totally dominated the awards that year, winning Best Picture, Adapted Screenplay, Director, Makeup, Art Direction, Costume Design, Sound, and Best Actor for F. Murray Abraham. This was Foreman's second Best Director Oscar, after having won about a decade earlier for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Amadeus made $51 million at the domestic box office, which would be equivalent to about $126 million today. Then it was equivalent to movies like Fletch and A View to a Kill. Not really a blockbuster by studio standards, but definitely one by the standards of the company that released Amadeus, Orion. Amadeus's triumph at the Oscars is notable because of the fact that it was not made or released by what was then considered to be a major studio. 
It was a relatively low-budget film financed and distributed by Orion, who at that time was not affiliated with one of the major legacy studios like MGM, as they later would be. There is this idea, I think, that people have, um, you know, based on sort of a short-sighted view of history, that Miramax reinvented the Oscars in the late 80s and 90s. But if you actually look at what was nominated and winning a few years before that, Amadeus is a sign of things changing. And it's that movie which kind of paves the way for other independent films to be taken seriously on this level in the next few years, including Kiss of the Spider Woman, A Room with a View, My Left Foot, etc., In general, the Oscars for movies released in 1984 had very little overlap with the big box office hits of the year. Aside from Amadeus, the films to win and be nominated for multiple Academy Awards that year were The Killing Fields and Places in the Heart, neither of which were major box office hits. And we will discuss the box office situation further later on in this episode as well in today's game. This is the first of movies that we've done for the show that I saw. So I saw this you know, on VHS relatively shortly after it came out, I was probably like 11 or 12 and I remembered it being very long. But at the same time, I also remembered like really digging it and like, and I'm surprised how many scenes um, really struck me. Um, This is a massive Oscar winner. It's a relative hit at a time of hits. I don't know why I've never seen it. I mean, I mean, so it came out when I was a child yeah. and then I probably never watched it on VHS in the nineties because it was a two hour and 40 minute film about classical music. Um, and then, you know, it's just, it's never been something where somebody who I was watching a movie with suggested putting it on. And I've never read anything about it that made me say, Oh yeah, you know what? I should see Amadeus except for the fact that part of me has some desire to become a best picture completist, but that feels like masochism. (laughs) And so, you know, I don't often just like throw on movies that won best picture just because they won best picture. But I mean, in this case, you know, my husband, Ryan, like this is a movie that he has said that he loved, you know, and so he was really excited to watch it with me while I watched it for the first time. Uh, So one of the things that I really admire about this movie, if there is a thing that you know this movie for, if you've never seen it, it's that Salieri uh, is a thing that exists in the culture, that like someone Salieri, the lesser artist who is jealous of the greater artist, the film and play successfully established that type. On that level of kind of archetypes, this movie is really impressive. Like there's something the writer got about human relations that I haven't really seen in the same way on on film before, you know, like in the same way that that Romeo and Juliet, he set out and he, and he created a story that could tell you about, you know, lovers that are are kept apart by families and, and other structural you know, issues around their lives. This play and movie has like such an interesting story uh, to tell about communities of artists where it felt the strongest to me was the times in which this didn't need to be a movie about Mozart that almost like this story structure felt like universal and kind of magical that you could picture a movie that's about, you know, jazz musicians in Paris um, that borrowed this structure or about about painters that borrowed the structure or about, you know, as in Eyes of Laura Mars, you, about fashion photographers that borrowed this structure. Like fundamentally, this is a very impressive bit of storytelling to me. But I, I think to build on what you're saying, the reason why that's so impressive is because there's the other layer, which is it's not just that he's jealous of him. It's just that he recognizes that he will never be able to achieve, that he's been cursed to recognize true brilliance 
even if even if his peers don't recognize it and he knows that he's not capable of achieving that same level of gift and it's all he wants but he also has the bureaucratic power to like enforce his pettiness you know he's a good enough musician to understand why mozart is so great and that's his curse also the idea that all of this is able to play out in such big grand terms like that it is a story about uh, a man losing his faith and about a person you know for whom to create art is to be in touch with god and to have this figure come in who is not you know just a person who is handier with the ladies or something like that on that plays out on such like this deep deep level for Salieri it just adds uh, i don't know it's such a it is such a powerful story and in some ways the when the story takes me away and just it feels like it's just giving me information about Mozart and his life is when i did start to uh, my mind did start to wander i feel the opposite to really? be honest i mean i feel like there i found the number of scenes of Salieri sort of plotting and gathering information and sending Cynthia Nixon out and and you know sort of working behind Mozart's back to be really repetitive yeah and I found myself increasingly just really enjoying it as a hangout movie with Mozart (laughs) and kind of a party movie with Mozart and I feel embarrassed the fact that I haven't seen this, but I've seen Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette like six <laughs> times, um, you know, because I lo- I do love Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette. But I mean, obviously, to some extent, it's like a, a female point of view cover version of this. I sort of line up in the middle of the two of you um, because I, I thought F. Murray Abraham gave just a riveting performance. But I agree the the plot machinations in order for the for for the Solieri stuff to really land emotionally you have to understand the gift yep. mm-hmm. and and that's why I love the hangout part of it as well yeah you know? you know everything just does repeat a lot both in terms of the the machinations of, of the plot but there are so many times it is Salieri talking over music you know which is a thing Karina and I know the power of like that's what we do professionally <laughs> um uh you know it's like oh here we are again explaining the genius of Mozart however each one of those times was really fun. It is just so pleasurable to have someone explaining why something is great and someone is great and having the music just roll. But the great, great scene is in the costume party when he does the Solieri oh my imitation God. with Solieri there. Play Solieri. Now that is a challenge. Oh. That is a challenge. Please. Please. <laughs> It's just, it's, it's an extraordinary, heartbreaking scene. Totally. That puts the whole movie in motion. It's a gift to make this movie about Mozart as opposed to, you know, about two jazz musicians in Paris or something like that. Because so often movies have difficulty explaining that this guy is super smart. This movie, you know, can turn to the music of Mozart <laughs> to explain why, yes, in fact, this man... Um, has something that this other character simply does not. You know, it does such a good job both establishing Salieri as a figure, establishing yeah. his music as a baseline, and then bringing Mozart's music to go, you know, leap so far and above that baseline. Um, it's really something. How do we feel about Tom Hulse himself? Um, I mean, talk about repetitive. <laughs> you know, the the performance is is like two notes. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, what I like about his performance and a few of the other performances is this sort of crude Americanness of it. Um, it, like it definitely was not common to do a period film in that way at the time. And it still feels fresh. 
um you know it's not it's not doesn't have the richness of the f murray abraham performance and and you know i think that tom hulse's career shows his range um but you know i i also feel like it's kind of the perfect performance for this movie you can recast this a million ways and i feel like the thing that they that no one will ever find in the character or be able to bring onto this the screen in the same way that works so well in this is that puppy dog nature that he has that he's just so sort of wide-eyed and eager the world just comes so easily to him the world of what he creates that he just this just like joy and this exuberance which you totally feel watching at home it's amazing how often they're pulling off that difficult trick of the period piece and the biopic of making people seem real uh, merely just by giving this guy contemporary energy like it it does like much more than like his Paul Westerberg haircut like <laughs> yeah and the actress who plays his wife as well um Elizabeth Barrage you know I I read a couple of contemporary reviews where they're like oh horrible miscast but I feel like she's kind of on the same level as Tom Hulse yeah. where it's it's the right thing for this telling of this story. That was clearly a choice. I mean, and he sort of did a sim- there's a similar vibe to Valmont too. Yeah, which is a movie I watched in history class in high school <laughs> um, and I have a soft spot for. There's a kind of vapidness to some of the casting, you know, that I, I almost feels like you can imagine the um, likability discussions, like how are we going to make this relevant to the kids, which, you know, I'm, I'm obsessed with finding that video that you talked about earlier. Oh, it's on YouTube. I'm, I'm, I'm going as soon as we get off. Did I bring Ryan yeah. in? This is why I'm here. I, I So Amadeus is one of it's a movie I grew up watching. I think it's an incredible movie. It's 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 one that I've one of those movies I've seen over and over again. And every time I go back to watch it, I get so angry. And last night I was just like fuming. I'm afraid I might have ruined the movie for Karina because <laughs> I was just like and I begged her, can I I was like so angry, so thank you for letting me kinda vent here for a second. So it's kind of amazing how how much the director's cut ruins the movie. If you know the original really well and you watch the director's cut, it's kind of a negative image masterclass in editing because it shows you just how brilliantly the original was cut to focus the story on the things that actually matter, to move you through it. Um, you know, you always hit a point when you're in when you're editing a movie Stacey, you know, where like you, you just, you, you're trying to see through the forest and you're saying what can fall away that seems like it's incredibly necessary right now and make the whole stronger. And you can tell they went through that step with the theatrical cut and it saved, and now seeing the director's cut, it's, you realize it saved the movie. Um, I mean, the the only real travesty is that right now the director's cut is the only thing that's available, which for someone who genuinely loves this film and thinks it's it's terrific, the fact that you can't see the original good version just kills me. I don't know. So does Orion still own their library? Does MGM own the library? Should we all just make phone calls to petition getting it back out? Let's pitch in, man. Yeah. Let's do it. Come on. Let's, let's, I don't know. Let's, uh, if we raise, I guess there are, you know what? There are probably bigger fish to fry in the world. Yeah, right but it's an easy phone call. I feel like we can get some good, like, aggregator out there who can tell us what Ryan, you just, can you also say something about the future of Star Wars now? Like, and you can wrap it in together. <laughs> we can definitely get this. 
so can you break down a little bit more um or maybe we can even guess what scenes are longer clearly we see a lot more of that cabaret uh opera no really no actually so don't think in terms of spectacle think in terms of story and so the things that they brilliantly carved away for the theatrical cut were all the things with the guy with the dog mm-hmm. like nailing home which is just repetitive is. nailing home something that we get right away that he's broke and he doesn't want to deal with students none of that is in the um, theatrical cut another interesting thing that they put back I mean there's stuff like when he goes backstage to talk to the opera singer afterwards that he's having the affair with and she makes a scene and the thing is that scene once you see the movie without it you realize how completely inert and repetitive it is because when she hits him with the flowers on the stage you instantly know what the deal is and that scene just repeats it Um, the other interesting thing that's in the director's cut that's not in the theatrical cut that on paper might seem like an interesting ad it's the whole thing where Stanzi where his wife um, accepts kind of like this offer to have an affair with Salieri in order to get him the job and in the original movie, he it like she brings him the um, the score and he's reading it and he's just like going into his head about how amazing it is. He drops it and she says, isn't it good? And he says, it's amazing. And she says, will you help us? And he gives her a dead stare and then walks away. That's and so that's much it. better. It's so much better. What it does, the next cut is to him staring at the crucifix, putting the crucifix in the fire and saying, we're enemies now, you and me. And coming off of his revelatory moment with the scores, it makes that moment sing, as opposed to in this, in the director's cut, is coming off of this weird thing where the wife, it seems out of character for her. Because come, well, it's you like, know. you've slept with a woman that I love, now I'm gonna, I'm gonna take your wife. The other aspect of it is that I definitely didn't remember sort of how much of about what Mozart represents to Salieri is this crisis of faith and this challenge you know to his faith like why would God give someone these gifts without giving me these gifts the notion that like one of the things that he has put forward to God in order to earn stuff is his celibacy and she comes in to sort of challenge his his notion of celibacy um that never continues on like there's there's no right. further payoff for that and it actually diminishes the the mozart part of it the celibacy is also a red herring because of the opera yeah. singer it's a dangling thread yeah it's interesting but like i said it's it's, it's an aspect of editing that doesn't get talked about a lot because it's hard to talk about which is big picture editing which is once you have the movie together and every scene is working what do you then carve away in order to shape it down to what the movie is actually about? And if you have A, B, C, you, some, a lot of times you realize you take out B, the connection between A and C is so much more electric and exciting than the sequence of events you had before. And you see that happen with the um, theatrical cut. It's just I, I wish it were out there. It's, it's really frustrating. It's good talking to you guys. Yeah, thanks absolutely. again. Thanks for letting thanks me crash. For crashing, Ryan. It's really fun watching the movie with Ryan last night, and he kept being like, "Like, I can't believe this. This is horrible. <laughs> this scene shouldn't be in the movie." You know, it was it was like having a, a second screen experience live. Shall we play a game? Sure. Okay, so this is about the top ten grossing films of 1984. What I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you what they are in alphabetical order. And then I want you guys to work together and try to figure out what the top five are. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. So the 10 are Beverly Hills Cop, 
Footloose, Ghostbusters, Gremlins, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, The Karate Kid, Police Academy, Romancing the Stone, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, and Terms of Endearment. Wow. That is, that's, that's a, a murderer's row it, of blockbusters. For, by the way, for, for a person who thought 80s movies were bad and I couldn't <laughs> remember them, that is that makes a good case for the fact that there were really good films that year. I can't believe Terms was the same year as all of those. Yeah. I hadn't seen Terms of Endearment until a couple of months ago, and man, I love that movie. So Terms of Endearment actually was released, I think, like December 28th, 1983, but it, all of its box office basically was in 1984. So, Oh, that's a good clue for this game, however. <laughs> all right. What are we thinking here, Stacey? Um, I think Ghostbusters Yes, I think that's our one. number one. That's a huge hit. I think Indiana Jones, that's the second one where they got rid of Karen Allen um, and had the, like, wax people. (laughs) I'm not sure which of those crimes is worse, but I still think that it did extremely, extremely well. That might be our number two. Yeah, I I would say number three is Beverly Hills Cop. It's definitely in the top five, but it's also R-rated, right? Um, So 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 I think that that makes it like five. Okay. Let's go. I would give that to fifth. And so then Romancing let's go with the kids the movie. I think that that was a big hit, but I also feel like that's like a, a movie for grownups. So let's put Gremlins in like the third spot. Again. And I think Gremlins is a three or four. And then what do we say? Footloose is on there. Oh, Footloose. I think Footloose is a bigger hit than Gremlins. Do you want to go Gremlins four and uh, Footloose three? Yeah, but then I th- remember Romancing the Stone being a huge hit and it had a sequel. I think we should bet on youth here. I think that kids went to see Gremlins. They went to see Footloose. They went probably went to see like Police Academy before they went yeah, to see Yeah, Police the Stone. Academy matter- was a huge hit too. All right, guys, are you ready to give me your final five? All right, let's start at the top and we'll, and we'll see where we end up. So we're going Ghostbusters 1. Yep. We are going Indiana Jones 2. I mean, I think so, right? So then the question is, do we have Gremlins, Beverly Hills Cop, Romancing the Stone, or Footloose at number three? Which one do you want to go I think it's Gremlins, probably. Okay, let's do Gremlins. I feel like they got a breakfast cereal. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. Um, Although I definitely would have bought the Footloose breakfast cereals if I could have. Bill and Ted's Excellent Cereal was a really good cereal and (laughs) a movie I loved. Are we going with Footloose next? I hate to say it, but I think we're going to kick Romancing the Stone to the curb, maybe, right? I feel like the only debate that we haven't really had, I think the sleeper here is Police Academy. I think you're right about that. I agree. And is it a bigger hit than Beverly Hills Cop? Because I feel like one of those should be our number five. Eddie Murphy was like one of the biggest movie stars in the world, in, in the country. So we're going Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Gremlins, Footloose, Beverly Hills Cop? Okay, well, you got three out of five. Oh, that's, that's not so bad. bad. So the fifth highest grossing film is Police Academy with oh. 82 million. I'm sorry. Number four is The Karate Kid with 91 million. Oh, fuck, Dude. we forgot. That's what we should have put in instead of Footloose. <laughs> but you got the top three correct. So hey, that's impressive. Ghostbusters, number one, Indiana Jones, number two, Gremlins, number three. Whoa, all right. Do you guys want to do the bonus question? Sure. Absolutely. Okay. So of these 10 films, how many, like Amadeus, had tie-in music videos? (laughs) Well, Ghostbusters Um, for sure. Yeah, Ray Parker Jr. 
Ray um, Parker foot, Jr. Footloose for sure. Footloose um, for sure. Back, but I'm sure there was an Axle F Beverly Hills Cop. Yep, there was. Um, um, uh, karate. Did, did Romancing the Stone have a love theme that would have been? Um, I th- I feel like Diane Warren wrote it. If it did, I would place a bet on that. That seems pretty good. Indiana Jones, no. Karate Kid. Was the Glory of Love uh, by Peter Cetera? Was that Karate Kid Two or was that Karate Kid One? It was Karate Kid Two, or, but Kar- I'll give it to you. Karate Kid had one. I don't think Gremlins had a hit, but this was the time when who knows Any, what this everything on that had soundtrack. a song in it. I don't remember Police Academy having one, but I certainly can imagine like Steve Gutenberg, you <laughs> know, goofing around on set. Star Trek Three, no. Terms of Endearment, I'm saying yes. Yes, I bet stone, Terms of I'm Endearment. Yes, Romancing the Stone, I think it had one. You're probably right. Probably Diane Warren again. So we're looking at like 7 out of 10. So the correct answer, at least as far as what I could find, and I did spend an hour today looking for (laughs) all of these music videos, (laughs) the correct answer is 5. So it's there's no terms of endearment as far as I could see. There's no pop music in that movie. I thought there could have been like some theme of terms of endearment well the five i found were footloose which is all footage from the movie in the video there's no kenny loggins at all oh. ghostbusters karate kid beverly hills cop and romancing the stone and the romancing the stone the romancing the stone one is this billy ocean song called when the going gets tough the tough get going and it's like i, I kind of and danny's in it yeah Danny's in the video yeah it, i remember it it's like a con a billy ocean concert but then they keep cutting away to kathleen turner danny devito and michael douglas wearing white suits also on the concert stage lip syncing the song but it's obvious they shot it on different days so good <laughs> oh man those were wild times Stacy, can you tell us about a beloved theater in your life or movie series or that sort of thing that you are missing right now? Um, I'm missing the new Bev. And I mean, I, I have a long relationship with the new Bev, not just, um, you know, not just since Quentin's owned it. But um, when I first moved to California um, and, and I was starting graduate school, I used to go to the New Bev all the time because, you know, I grew up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and if it wasn't on, like, whatever the East Coast version of the Z Channel was, I wasn't seeing it, and I I would just go there for double features for a whole weekends, and, um, it you know, I've been taking my kids to movies there, um, looking at the photos of the marquee on Instagram, you know, the see you soon breaks my heart a little bit it really is a special place like I and and the thing that really did it for me was uh taking my daughter to the kitty matinees it's really such a special thing like you know for it's like everything from the flavored popcorn to the raffles to the like genuinely odd uh (laughs) curation of the movies you know like going to see these like really third and fourth rate yet still completely delightful disney movies like the first movie i took my daughter to there was a movie i'd never seen would never have seen otherwise called sammy the way out seal billy muni and his brother you know (laughs) uh, 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 take a seal home from summer vacation and you know havoc ensues when they bring him back to the suburbs and it is was just delightful, and it was just like one of the formative cinematic experiences for my now sort of burgeoning movie buff daughter, and it's a special place. Here's the part of the episode when we turn to you, 
to help keep those places we miss going to so much right now alive. We have been encouraging you to contribute to the Art House America fundraiser, a campaign organized by the Criterion Collection and Janus Films, an Art House Convergence. And with your help, they have raised over three quarters of a million dollars and they are starting to issue their first grants. It is really exciting and really critical. You can find a link in our show notes and on our website, smallpictureshow.com. And if you ever want to drop us a line, email us at smallpictures at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at The Memory Palace. You can follow her at Karina Longworth. And you should subscribe to both of our other podcasts. Mine is called The Memory Palace, and hers is You Must Remember This. I have a new season of You Must Remember This launching May 26th. It's about Polly Platt, and it's called Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. And now let's check in with next week's guest and find out what we're going to watch. Hello, Nate and Karina. It's me, Natasha Leone, doing what else? Watching David Lynch's Dune with you guys. Not together, don't panic. Watching it separately. Uh, Can't wait to talk about it. So track down David Lynch's Dune and join us and Natasha Leone as we ride a giant worm through the sands of a distant desert planet. Spice is life.